India, a young woman watches as her sister is dragged off by Hindu nationalists. She doesn't know whether her sister is dead or alive. In a North Korean prison camp, a man is shaken awake after he has been beaten unconscious. The beating continues. In Nigeria, a woman escapes her Boko Haram captors. She's been raped. She's now pregnant. When she gets to her village, her and her child are going to be rejected by her people. In Sri Lanka, some children are walking up to the building where their church meets when an explosion occurs. Many of them die. These people live in different regions. They live on different continents. The only thing that they have in common is their faith in Jesus Christ. In just the last year, there have been over 260 million Christians who have lived in places of high persecution across the world. 260 million Christians. In the last year alone, 2,983 Christians have been killed simply because of their faith in Christ. And this isn't new. The truth is the world always has been and the world always will be hostile to the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who follow Jesus. And until Jesus returns and makes things new, we're going to face these difficult times. You see, the Bible teaches that this world is not our home. We are aliens living in a hostile world. And so the question we have to ask is, how do we survive in a hostile world? And that's the question that, that Peter answers as he writes this epistle, this letter that we call 1 Peter. He is writing to Christians who have been scattered throughout the world because of their faith in Jesus. But the good news is what Peter says to these New Testament believers is just as applicable to us today as it was to them. Now, last week we discovered the first thing that we need to do if we want to survive in a hostile world, and that is this. We need to remember who we are. And this is what Peter says. He says, we are chosen by God. We have been born into his family. And because of that, we are heirs to a priceless inheritance. You see, as followers of Jesus, we don't live looking at the past, what we've experienced. We don't even live looking at the present, what we are now going through. We live looking at the future, looking at the hope that we have as we see Jesus face to face. And Peter says that if we are faithful, when we stand before Jesus, we will see, receive much praise and honor and glory. But this morning, I want us to turn our attention to the second thing he tells us if we want to survive in a hostile world, and that's this. We live with the future in mind. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You can follow along on the screen. But we're going to read verse 13 through chapter 2, verse 3. You follow along as I read. So think clearly and exercise self-control. 
Look forward to the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old way of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. And remember that the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time as foreigners in the land. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But he has now revealed him to you in these last days. Through Christ, you've come to trust in God and And you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. And as the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. So get rid of all evil behavior Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and and, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. Now, Paul tells us two future events that will impact everyone, regardless of who you are, Regardless of what you believe, these events are going to have an impact on your life. Now, the first one is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter talks about that in verse 13. He says, look forward to the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. You see, in the New Testament, salvation always had three different aspects. There was the past aspect of salvation. I have been saved. When I place my faith and trust in Jesus, I am saved from the penalty of sin. His blood covers my sins. I have been saved. But then there's the present aspect of salvation. I am being saved. As I submit and surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, I am being saved from the power of sin. I am being sanctified. God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, is making me into a new person. But every one of us who is a follower of Jesus is looking forward to that future day when we will be saved. When everything that we read about in God's word will come to pass. We will receive a new nature. Our enemy Satan will be defeated once and for all forever. And everything will be made new. 
And so Paul talks about that, in, or Peter talks about that in verse 13. We are looking forward to this gracious salvation. Now, when will it occur? It will occur when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. And that word revealed, it's the same word, the Greek word apocalypsis, that is used in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, when, when John says that he is giving us the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. You see, the book of Revelation isn't so much a book about future events that will take place, though we are told future events that will take place. The book of Revelation reveals to us that moment in time when Jesus will be revealed to the world in all of his glory. And the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 1 that when that day occurs, when the revelation of Jesus comes to pass, even those who have pierced him will see him. And we are told that all the nations of the world will mourn. Now, though there are people who believe the Bible is God's word who disagree on this, I believe the Bible teaches that before that happens, that revelation of Jesus, when Jesus comes back a second time, there are two other things that are going to take place. The first one is the rapture of the church, the snatching away of the church. That is when Jesus comes and he takes the church, his body, his bride, out of the world. There's coming a day when, when Jesus is going to come in the clouds and he's going to take us home. But then there is a second event after the rapture, and that is the wrath of the Lamb. You see, in the book of Revelations, we're told that there is coming a day of immense tribulation. But this tribulation isn't the result of the world persecuting the church. This tribulation is the result of a holy God bringing judgment upon the world. And then after the rapture of the church and after the wrath of the Lamb, that's when Jesus will be revealed to the world. And so you and I as believers should be living our life in light of the fact that we know Jesus is coming back. But Peter tells us about a second event that we live in light of, and that is the judgment of God. In verse 17, he says, Remember that the heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. You see, the Bible makes it clear that one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. In Romans chapter 14, it says it this way, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And then it says, yes, each of us will give in a personal account to God. Every single one of us will give an account of our life to God. In 2 Corinthians, it says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And some Christians live their lives as if they will never stand before God. But that's not what the Bible teaches you see, the Bible teaches that one day every single one of us will stand before God and we will give an account of our life, the choices we have made, the words we have said, even the thoughts that we have had in our mind. And so in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back and in light of the fact that we will all stand before his judgment seat, how should we live. Well, Peter gives us four things. 
First of all, he tells us we need to live as obedient children. Look what he says in verses 14 and 15. He, he says, so you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old way of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do just as God who chose you is holy. You see, the Bible teaches that as a follower of Jesus, you should follow Jesus. <laughs> now that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if I'm going to call myself a follower of Jesus, then obviously I should follow Jesus. But unfortunately, we live in a day and age that is so cheap and watered down biblical Christianity that many people don't even know what it looks like to follow Jesus. Many people don't know what it looks like to live a biblically-centric life. We pray a prayer, we get dunked in water, and we go back to living the same old way we've always lived, no different than anyone else with the exception of we may go to church a little bit more. We have the same habits, we use the same words, we think the same way. The only difference is we call ourselves by a different name. We say we're Christians. But Peter said, you can't do that. You must live as obedient children. You can't go back and live the old way you used to live just because your flesh desires those things. No, we can't because the God who called us is holy and he has called us to live a holy life. Now that word holy it's a weird word for us, isn't it? I mean, it's confusing. Even, even for those of us who have grown up in church, I mean, we think the holiness, holy, holiness, what is this? When I was a kid, my, my mom's from a Pentecostal holiness background. And so every now and then, I would go to the church that she grew up in. And so I had this mindset of what holiness looked like. And in my mind as a little kid, holiness meant if you're a woman, you wore your hair in a bun. You couldn't wear pants. You had to wear a dress. And it had to be down below your knees. And you did some crazy things in worship. That was my mindset when I thought about holy and holiness. But as I began to get into God's word and discover what God's word really meant, I discovered that holiness means something entirely different. Actually, the, the Hebrew and the Greek word for holy has two meanings. The first meaning means to be set apart or separated. That's why we call it holy matrimony. We call marriage holy matrimony. Because a man and a woman are setting themselves apart. They're separating themselves from previous relationships. And now they have this one special relationship. They are set apart. They're separate. But the word also means different, distinct. That's why we call the Bible Holy Scripture. Because the Bible is different than any other book that was ever written. Every other book, regardless of how good, regardless of how meaningful, every other book was written by man. We say that the Bible was written by God and he used men to pen it. You see, the Bible is a separate, distinct book. 
And so we're called to be set apart. We're called to be different than the world. Why? Because the God we serve is holy. And as his children, we inherit his nature. You as a child of your parents, you've inherited your nature from your parents. There are things about you that if I knew your parents, I could go now and I get it. Now and I understand. Your fears, your phobias, the certain quirks that you have, the the things that you love. We get a lot of that from our parents. We inherit that. And when we are born into the family of God, we inherit his nature. Now listen very carefully. There may be some of you who are here. And there may be some of you who are watching online who call yourself a Christian. And yet you have no real desire to live a life as an obedient child. You have no real desire to live a life of personal holiness before God. I mean, you don't want to pay for your sins. You don't want to go to hell. You want to go to heaven. But the reality is there is no desire deep within you to live a life that is pleasing to God. And I would say to you, if that's where you are, regardless of whether you call yourself a Christian or not, you're not. You haven't been saved by the grace of God. You've never been born again. God's spirit has never come in you to make you new because Christians, real Christians, long to live for Jesus. God's spirit, testifying with their spirit, his spirit, gives us a desire to live a life that is pleasing to him. But here's the reality. We can love Jesus with all of our heart. We can have a desire to live for him. And yet, we can admit that it's still a struggle, right? I mean, can any of you testify to that? Man, I want to live for Jesus. I'm not like one of those people that don't want to, but man, I struggle. I mean, I want to live for him, but there's times that I find myself not doing what I want to do. And so, how do we win this battle for holiness? Well, Peter says here that the battle is won or lost in our minds. That's what he says in verse 13. He says, prepare your minds for action. Exercise self-control. Now, the word he uses for mind here is not a word talking about our intellect. It's talking about our understanding, how we look at the world. You see, it's our mind that guides and directs how we live. That's why the apostle Paul said, don't be conformed to this world. But to be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. When we are saved, we no longer look at the world the way the world looks at the world. Our world view has changed. We no longer look through human lens at the world. We begin to look at the world through God's lens. That's why Peter tells us in Philippians chapter 4, we need to fix our thoughts, we need to fix our minds on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Why? Because those are the things that define God. And when we focus on those things, we will have the mind of God. Now what Peter literally says here is he says, gird up the loins of your mind. 
And you're probably going, what? What's all this gird up your loins thing? I don't even know if I want to know. Well, see, biblically, they didn't wear pants like we wear right now. They wore your robes. And as you can imagine, if you were in a race, you wouldn't want to have your robe just down there at your knees tripping you up and messing you up. If you're in a battle, you wouldn't want that robe keeping you from being able to move all the way that you need to move. And so what they would do is they would gird up their robe, their loins. They would take their robe and they would tuck it into their belt so that it would not trip them up. What Peter is saying here is don't let this world trip you up. You're in a race. You're getting ready for battle. And you need to make sure your mind is prepared. Then he says, and exercise self-control. Now, Galatians 5 tells us that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. But the word here is not that word. The word here literally means sober, it means steady, it means control. In other words, what Peter is saying is don't let your mind race all over the place. Have some discernment. Be steady in your thought. I want you to listen. This is a problem in the church today. You say, how do you know? Because I see what some of you post. I mean, we post crazy stuff, absolutely crazy stuff, and then it doesn't come true, it doesn't come to pass, and you go, well, that's okay. No, it's not. You've made yourself look like an idiot, and the problem, listen to me, everyone that knows that you claim the name of Jesus, you've made the church look that way. You don't do that. You're discerning. You're steady. You're controlled in your thought. You don't buy into every single thing that is out there. Why? Because we're called to live as obedient children. Second thing. Peter says, if I, I want to be ready for the future, I need to live in reverent fear. Look at verse 17. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time as foreigners in the land. Now, there's some who try to soft sell this word, but the Greek word is phobos. It means fear. It means terror. It means to be afraid. People say, well, it just means respect. No, it doesn't. It just means to be in awe. No, it doesn't. It means to be terrified of. Did you know that the Bible teaches that you and I need to have a terror when we think about God, when Peter realized who Jesus was, I mean, even before the resurrection and the ascension and all of that, he, he was in a holy fear and he said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. After John had experienced the power of God in his life over and over and over again on the Isle of Patmos, when he came into the presence of God, he was overwhelmed with fear. Isaiah, in the presence of God. That's why the Bible tells us over and over to fear God and turn from evil. There, there's a sense of, of, of casualness, a flippant attitude in the church today toward God. God isn't your man upstairs. 
God is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the all-powerful creator of everything. He is the holy God that destroyed the world through a flood because of the evilness of man. He is a holy God that rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah because their wickedness was so great. You don't have a flippant attitude toward God. You fear him. Then the lost world fears him or should because his judgment is coming. We don't fear God because his judgment is coming. You see, our reverent fear of God is a result of us experiencing redemption. Just because we've experienced redemption doesn't take away our fear of God. When I was growing up, before my dad went into ministry, he was a Marine. My dad was 6'2". He was um, in good shape. I thought my dad was the um, biggest, baddest guy that ever lived, as we all do. But growing up, I, I, knew, I knew two things. I loved my dad, but I was afraid of my dad. And I knew that my dad loved me. I, I knew that he was never going to hurt me or harm me, but that didn't take away the fear I had of him. I knew that, man, he was strong and powerful, and not only could he protect me against my enemies, man, I better obey him. Better do what he says. But I didn't have that desire to do what he says because I was afraid he was going to beat me. I did what he said and was living in this fear of him because, and I loved him so much. I wanted to honor him with my life. I want you to listen to what Peter says beginning in verse 18. Verse 17, he says, we live with this reverent fear. In verse 18, he says, for you know That God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. You see, I don't live in reverent fear of God because I'm afraid that he's going to pounce on me and judge me. I live in reverent fear because I know the price he paid to redeem me. And that reverent fear isn't going to cause me to take for granted who he is or have a flippant attitude toward him, it's going to cause me to want to worship him with all of my being. Peter says we live as obedient children. We're holy because he is holy. We live in reverent fear. Why? Because he paid a great price to redeem us. Third, we show sincere love. Verse 22 You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now, you must show sincere love to each other. As brothers and sisters, love each other deeply with all your heart. You see, Peter tells us here that the gospel gives us this remarkable ability to love people, even our enemies. The gospel gives us patience with the flaws of others because we recognize that we had and we still have flaws in our own life. The gospel frees us from the tyranny of needing people to be happy. And because of that, we can stop using people and start loving people. It's the gospel that allows us to love in a supernatural way. 
way. Peter tells us that we are to love sincerely. That word literally means without hypocrisy. Have you ever had someone say they love you and then they turn around and they say something about you to someone else or they do something to hurt you? I'm sure we all have. I have as a preacher. Man, I love you, Pastor Rocky. And then they go outside and they say things. That's not loving sincerely. That's being a hypocrite. It's saying one thing and doing something else. You see, what Peter is saying here is that real love, it begins in our heart as our heart is made new. But real love makes its way into our mouth, into our ears, into our hands, and into our feet. It will show up in what we do. It will show up in what we say. Now listen, we all mess up occasionally. Boy, I've had to apologize to people more times than not when I've said something that wasn't loving. Sometimes I've said it to their face. Other times I've said it behind their back. There are times when, when I should have done something because it was a loving thing to do and I didn't do it. We've all done that. But understand, if the love of God has been experienced by you, deep within you, is going to be a desire to show that love to other people. And that's why Peter goes on to say we're to love deeply with all of our hearts. The word deeply is the word for pure. It needs to be pure, real, authentic love. And it needs to be intently. Here's what I know. It takes work to love. God gives us the ability to love through the power of the Holy Spirit, but it still takes work. You know, people that tell you, well, if you really love them, it doesn't take work. That's a bunch of bull. And I've been married for 37 years. I love this woman to my right more than any other woman on planet Earth. But it takes work. That takes more work for her probably than it does for me. But, I mean, it takes work. And she can get on my nerves. She can aggravate me. She can irritate me. Why? Because she's human. She's a work in progress. Says, I'm a work in progress. And if we're going to love, we've got to love intently. It's going to take work. It's going to take effort. It doesn't just happen without any effort whatsoever. So we're to have a sincere love. And then finally, he says we're to crave pure spiritual milk. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. He says like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into the full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. I've got two grandkids that are being breastfed. I don't have the ability to give them what they need. Their moms do. And you know what I've discovered as I've been in their presence when they get hungry? They cry out because they've tasted that it's good. And they're hungry. And they want some of it. And the Bible says here that we are to crave, we're to hunger, we're to yearn for God's word because we have tasted the kindness of God. In other words, when I experience the grace and mercy of God in my life, man, it's just a taste of what God has for me. And so I have a desire to get into his word so I can get more 
of what God has for me. Now, Peter, I believe, says here the reason that some of us aren't craving the word like we should is because we're craving the world more than we should. Did you hear me? You see, if I'm craving the world, my craving for the word isn't going to be as great. That's why Peter says that we need to get rid of all evil behavior. Now, here's the problem. Most of us, we, 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 we have this picture of evil behavior, don't we? And you, you can think in your mind, this is what evil behavior looks like. And yet, Peter gives us four things, and none of the four things are the kind of things that most of us think about when we think about evil behavior. And yet, Peter says, this defines evil behavior. You need to get rid of it. He gives us four things. Deceit, dishonesty hypocrisy, jealousy, and unkind speech. Deceit, dishonesty. When we're just dishonest with people, we, we say one thing, but we know it's not the truth. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when we say one thing and we live something else. Jealousy, envy. Jealousy, envy is when I see that you have something I want and I get upset that you have it and I don't because I want it. Jealousy, envy, and then unkind speech. We don't need to define that. I mean, that comes in all kind of ways. Here's what I know. As I read those things, there are some things that I don't struggle with as much. There are other things in that list of four that, man, Peter nailed it. He got me. What about you? Peter says, when those things are being manifested in your life, the hunger, the craving for the word is probably not what it needs to be. And we need to crave the word. Why? Because the word is our source of truth. The word is what guides us and directs us in life. So we need to crave the word. Are you craving the word? Are you spending time each and every day in God's word? I can tell you this, listen to me. If you're not into God's word every day, you're not craving the word. You may like it, but you're not craving it. Because when you have a craving, you fulfill that craving. You do whatever it takes to fulfill it. So Paul, or Peter, tells us how to live with the future in mind. He says, live as obedient children live in reverent fear, show sincere love, crave pure spiritual milk. But what you need to understand is what Peter makes clear is these things are not what make you right with God. These things are the result of you being right with God. Because you've been ransomed, because you've been redeemed through the precious blood of Jesus because God paid such a high price for your salvation, you want to live as an obedient child. You want to live in reverent fear. You want to show sincere love to brothers and sisters in Christ, and you want to crave that pure spiritual milk. Not to be made right, because you're right. So what about it? Are those four things in your life right now? If they're not, 
then you really do need to ask why. And if it's because you haven't been redeemed, then I got to tell you, listen, don't leave here without making this right with God. It's the most important thing you can do. And I can promise you, he will change your life. Would you bow your head with me? Close your eyes. And with your head bowed, with your eyes closed. If you're here and you say, Rocky, I'm, I, I know I'm not redeemed. I haven't been saved. God's spirit hasn't made me new, but I want to be. I want you to know today the reason you want to be is because God is drawing you to himself. And I beg you not to leave here if God is drawing you to himself. Don't leave here without responding to his grace, his mercy. So if that's where you're at and you're ready to surrender all and trust Jesus then I encourage you to pray this prayer to him right now. Dear God, I humbly come to you this morning acknowledging my sin, my rebellion, my disobedience. I'm sorry. I don't want to live in rebellion anymore. Forgive me. Jesus, I believe you came to this earth. I believe you died on a cross. I believe you rose from the grave so that my sins could be forgiven. Right here, right now, I'm asking you to save me. I'm giving you my life. Take control. Whatever you want, wherever you want me to go, I'm yours. Fill me with your spirit. Do what I can't do. Change me. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer. Thank you for saving.